newsletter, May 2020. Charts never die. On September 17, 1981, sexy Doors singer Jim Morrison's bedroom eyes gazed out from the cover of Rolling Stone magazine. The caption read, he's hot, he's sexy, and he's dead. It might not mark a milestone in the history of good taste, but astrologically, the event has always intrigued me. What was going on in his chart? Or more pressingly, would his chart still work even though he was no longer in it? Morrison had died probably in a bathtub and probably as a result of a heroin overdose in Paris 10 years earlier. That had put an end to the doors, which had formed six riotous years earlier in Los Angeles. Ten years gone, and yet Jim Morrison's career was suddenly on a roll. Looking at 1980, the year before this Rolling Stone cover, the sales of every single Doors album had doubled or tripled compared to 1979, the year before. Joe Smith, the chairman of Electra Records, said no group that isn't around anymore has sold that well for us. The Doors' magnum opus, The End, had been featured in Francis Ford Coppola's hit film, Apocalypse Now, in 79. The following year, a Morrison biography, No One Gets Out of Here Alive, by Jerry Hopkins, sold unexpectedly well. Jim Morrison was born in Melbourne, Florida, 11.55 a.m. Eastern Wartime, on December 8th, 1943. Even though he exited that chart in 1971, it seems that it lived on even without him. Now, when someone's moon progresses into the seventh house, it's not just about personal relationships. That event typically coincides with increasing public visibility. In my own chart, for example, the rising of the moon coincided with the publication of my first book. Jim Morrison experienced such a progressed moonrise on September 6, 1978, three years before the infamous Rolling Stone cover, but right on schedule with the rising tide of his posthumous popularity. His moon rose and he got hot. On May 19th of 1980, as his record sales were exploding, Morrison's solar arc Pluto also in his seventh house, made a square to his tenth house Sagittarian sun. In other words, major solar arc event triggering a tenth house sun as this explosion of fame was occurring. Go further. Transiting Uranus conjuncted Morrison's midheaven three times, in December of 80, in June of 81, and finally on September 19, 1981, just two days after the pub date of that Rolling Stone cover, seeing Uranus crossing the midheaven, if I were sitting with a client, I might have said, expect the unexpected in your career. That is what I would have said to Jim Morrison, too, but I would have needed a Ouija board to do it. He was maybe hot and sexy, but he was dead. And yet that transit 
of Uranus over the midheaven still worked like clockwork. There's more. Solar arc Mercury made a conjunction with Morrison's lunar south node on October 11th of 1981, while solar arc Venus had made a trine to his Pluto on June 8th of 81. And note that Pluto ruled Morrison's Scorpio midheaven, linking that Venus event, the Venus contact with Pluto, directly to his career. Meanwhile, by progression, Venus conjuncted Morrison's natal 10th house sun less than a year later, on August 1st of 1982. Now, progressed Venus hits his midheaven, and an artist's career takes off like a rocket. No astrologer would be surprised at that development. But what if the artist had died a decade earlier? All of this raises some really profound questions about how astrology works and how a chart might live on under its own steam even after death. Maybe that's true, but a great danger in astrology lies in generalizing too much from a single example. Somebody might say, I'm a Sagittarian and I hate parakeets, therefore Sagittarians hate parakeets. You know, We've got to be careful of that. Could the uncanny relevance of Jim Morrison's posthumous transits, progressions, and solar arcs be some kind of fluke? I have not made an extensive study of all this. It fascinates me, so I wish that I had time to do that. I think it would make an excellent topic for a book, by the way. Lacking the opportunity to dive into this question in an exhaustive way, I figured I would just check out another example and simply see if the pattern still held. As I cast about for another possibility, I immediately thought of Vincent van Gogh. Arguably, no painter in the past two centuries has become so instantly recognizable, so widely copied, nor had such an impact upon collective taste. And yet Van Gogh, during his lifetime, was poverty-stricken. By most reports, he sold only one single painting in his lifetime, and that was only seven months before he died. In other words, in my search for people whose lives illustrated a burst of posthumous fame, Van Gogh supplied an even better test than Jim Morrison, at least in terms of contrast. Morrison enjoyed enormous fame, perhaps enjoyed it a little bit too much during his lifetime. Van Gogh, on the other hand, was lucky to get a meal. Vincent Van Gogh was born in Zundart, Holland, March 30th, 1853, at 11 o'clock in the morning. That birth time given on the hour seems potentially shaky, but it does have a Rodden rating of AA. Now, the highest price corrected for inflation ever fetched by any painting in auction was 82 and a half million US dollars. That happened in under three minutes on May 15th of 1990, the painting was Van Gogh's The Portrait of Dr. Gachet, painted in June of 1890, just one month before Van Gogh shot himself. I cannot help but ponder 
the sense of irony that Vincent van Gogh would have felt had he known the price that painting would fetch almost exactly one century after his death. That money would have bought him a lot of absinthe. Astrologically, in Vincent van Gogh's natal chart, we see a triple conjunction of the moon, the lunar south node, and Jupiter, all in Sagittarius in the sixth house. When the portrait of Dr. Gachet sold for that jackpot price, the progressed moon was right there aligned with those sensitive points. You remember the moon by progression, 27 years and four months to get around. So its arrival anywhere is a big deal. The moon had just conjuncted Van Gogh's natal moon, March 1st of 1990, century after he's dead. It hit his south node on May 11th and his Jupiter on the 31st of May, right on schedule. Remember that auction was May 15th. Two weeks later, progressed moon hits Jupiter. You can't make this stuff up. Going further, transiting Jupiter made a square to Van Gogh's sun on October 1st of 1989, quickly retrograded over it again November 24th of 89. And here's my favorite part. Jupiter squared Van Gogh's natal sun a final time on the very day his painting broke all the records, May 15th, 1990, again, a hundred years after he was gone. And by the way, anybody who thinks squares are automatically bad news obviously needs a reality check. Let's go further. By solar arc, Van Gogh's Venus made a trine to his sun, December 29th, 1989. It was, in other words, only half a degree past exactitude when that big sale happened, Venus trining the sun. There's another. Jupiter conjoined Van Gogh's natal Uranus, December 17th of 90, a few months after the sale. When I see Jupiter-Uranus interactions, I always tell my clients to enter contests. I tell them deeper things too. But Van Gogh won big. But was it Van Gogh or just his chart that won? And what exactly is the difference? Again, extensive research might possibly reveal that these two examples are just weirdly lucky, but I doubt it. I think this phenomenon is real. The questions it raises are about as juicy as questions can get. The souls of Jim Morrison and Vincent van Gogh were no longer bound in any definitive way to their birth charts when these transits and progressions were happening. Were their souls sailing in astral realms? Had either of them reincarnated? Van Gogh had a century to think about returning, Morrison a decade. Both had tragic deaths, dare I say dumb deaths. One died by unintentional overdose and the other one by suicide. I have often heard that such precipitous exits tend to lead to quick re-entries via reincarnation. Make of that what you will. The inescapable fact is that neither one of these human beings were in their charts anymore, at least not in the ways we customarily assume. And yet their charts lived on, still actively responding to astrological stimulus as if there were ghosts or machines whose batteries had not yet run down.
And maybe those are the right metaphors, more or less, that your chart lives on after you no longer need it, as if it were a ghost or a machine. Charts seem to still work, at least in a mechanical sort of way, after we pass away. Our two examples demonstrate that principle pretty clearly, I think. Now, I knew about Van Gogh when I was young, but seeing his museum in Amsterdam when I was 24 years old impacted me so profoundly that I had to write about it in The Changing Sky. That trip to Europe, my first one, happened in 1973, when Van Gogh had already been dead for over 80 years. If I said that his art still touched me, no one would bat an eye, me either. But was what touched me more than his art? Was his ghost still in the air somehow? That Sagittarian complex in his natal chart happens to align with my natal Venus, personally, and weirdly, Van Gogh's progressed moon was entering my seventh house around the time I saw his museum. But I've got to say, at some point, astrology can drive you crazy, and I think I just put my toe over that line. In any case, this all got me thinking. I see that my own progressed sun will try in my midheaven on September 1st of 2058. And four years later, Jupiter will do the same thing by solar arc, 2062. Looks pretty good for my career then, doesn't it? Of course, I'll be 109 years old when all that gets going, so I am hoping they serve hot buttered popcorn on the other side of the veil. Well, till then, please stay well, and I'll do my best to do the same. Thank you.